You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Welcome to this special edition of the podcast. In this episode, we are going to be responding to some listeners' questions. We have started to amass quite a a little number of questions now, and a few of them revolve around this same issue that we are going to be uh, addressing today. So I thought it would be best if I just compiled the answer into a short podcast for you. If you are a listener of the podcast and you do have uh, theological questions, please go to the website theologyandapologetics.com. You can simply go to the contact form. You can submit your question at any time and I will do my best to try and answer them either by email or if uh, I feel it's worth it, we can sort of make a podcast like we're doing with this episode here. Now, if you are a Patreon supporter, Patreon is a a website where you can sign up to, to be a monthly donor to the podcast. We are a listener supported podcast then you can actually have the benefit of asking questions and they will most definitely be answered as many as you want uh, on the podcast at some point so please go to patreon the details will be in the end credits if you want to support uh, the podcast in that way and get the benefits that come with that so this is a question from brandon and i've summarized it briefly into a, a format that works for the podcast but the basic question is how should christians respond to the mosaic law It's not the first time we've had a question about this. It comes up a lot. It comes up in apologetics. Often you hear people ask, why do we not agree with sort of a sexual ethic in today's world? And we base it on the Old Testament. And then people complain that we don't do that with things like dress codes and eating shrimp and pork. This all comes back to the issue of how we relate to the Mosaic law. So I thought uh, it would be best to make this into a podcast because there is a lot of confusion around this issue. The central uh, part of this question really revolves around what is the New Testament believer's responsibility to keep the law? So the New Testament believer, what is our responsibility to the law? Now, this may not be in a a soteriological sense. We're not saying that we we think you keep the law to be saved. But even beyond that, moving into the the realm of, of Christian ethics, how should we relate to it? Do we have to obey it? Are we under obligation to it? All these questions are hopefully going to be looked at and answered today. Now, the confusion, there is a lot of confusion that, that surrounds this topic. It's often seen, if, you, if you've if you read any commentaries or books or theological volumes on this, you'll notice the way that theologians will often split the Mosaic law into different parts. It's a usually a sort of trifold classification uh, into moral legal and ceremonial. So the moral laws, obviously the Ten Commandments, the legal ones are those relating to to capital punishment and things like that. And then the ceremonial laws are those that are particularly focused on the functioning of the tabernacle or the temple and the priests and the Levites. And most people will then, after making that division, they will then argue that we keep the moral part of the law and we do away with the ceremonial, something along those lines. You've probably encountered that before. Other people will argue that the whole law has been done away with and therefore there is now no law for believers. This is often classed as antinomianism. Uh, And this is the view that that there is no law now and people raise concerns about that view because it sort of seems to imply that it doesn't matter what we do once we're saved, we can just live how we want. There's no law and there's no accountability. And of course, we're going to reject that view immediately, but we, we will get into this in a little bit more depth. Now, other people will say that there are um, we only have an obligation to keep those parts of the law that we find repeated in the New Testament. And again, th- there's some little bit of truth in that, but there's also it's operating from a place of 
confusion. It doesn't start with the right premise, which I will hopefully demonstrate to you today. Now, these approaches, as some have observed, are a little bit arbitrary, maybe. They seem sort of unsatisfactory. There's no clear-cut answer, They're a little bit vague and subject to people's interpretations. What basically we're saying is that, that this does not provide a, a system which can give a definite answer to the original question that we raised at the beginning. And I'm hoping that uh, I can bring some clarity to that. But be aware, there's many good people with differing views on this, and that is why this debate is still ongoing. So let me just share with you some things that I've thought about this issue, and hopefully they'll provide a bit of clarity for you. How do I answer the question? Firstly, I believe we need to actually clear up a few misunderstandings that often uh, colour the way we look at this question. And that's our, the way we use the term law, Torah in Hebrew, nomos in Greek. Now, quite often you'll find, whether it's done consciously or subconsciously, it's hard to determine. But often when Christians hear the word law, they sort of think it's a synonym, synonym for the Old Testament. That means when they hear it, they think, oh, the law, yes, that's the Old Testament stuff. And the problem with this is that when you say the law is done away with, it subconsciously means that oh, the whole Old Testament is done away with in, in one sense. It, it gives the Old Testament a slightly inferior status to the New Testament, it, almost like the sort of ancient Marcionite heresy. Now, this is just not acceptable. It's a misunderstanding of the term law, and it, it doesn't really understand what we have in the, in the Bible itself. Secondly, just on a very simple level, the term law for us in, in the English context that we look at this often has very negative connotations, this sort of onerous law that is held over us that we have to live up to and if not we're going to get punished. And again, that's just a, a complete out-of-context misunderstanding of the way this term is often used in the Bible. In reality, this word really just means teaching and instruction. And it, and it often has this overtly positive, life-giving aspect in the Bible. It's the, the law, the teaching, the wisdom, the oracles of God. It's a wonderful thing. So we must stay away from these caricatures that we've developed uh, over Christian history. Now, that's just some basic introductionary material we need to have in our heads as we move forward. In the context of this question specifically, and, and all the issues that go with it, we need to be very precise because the debate is around, really, the specific regulations of the Mosaic law. So we're, we're focusing specifically on the Mosaic law, the covenant stipulations that were given at Sinai. Now, this means we also need to be clear that there is so much more in the Old Testament than just the Mosaic law. Yes, that is a law code that we find. It's very important, and it is connected to one particular covenant, the Sinai covenant. But we also have the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the New Covenant. So there's so much more. So what we really need is to have a much more comprehensive biblical theology of the covenants in Scripture themselves and, and how they relate to us as believers at different time periods in the in the progressive revelation that we find throughout the Bible. Now, you will find people that seem to imply we are maybe obligated to keep the Ten Commandments, but not the other 603 commandments. Generally, there's assumed to be 613 commandments in the Torah as, as sort of tabulated by, by rabbis and sages. So it's just the Ten Commandments that we keep. Now, when you push on this, 
people usually get, Christians this is, get a little fuzzy maybe about the fourth commandment regarding the Sabbath, because that's always been uh, particularly associated with the people of Israel. And so that, again, it just shows and highlights the problem that we get when we try to partition the law into these various different segments. And, and that, because of that, I believe it's not the right way to go. One of the main things we need to understand as we look at this question is the way that the Mosaic law is viewed in the Bible, because there is a unity to the law of Moses. It is always viewed as a singular unit. The term law, when applied to the Mosaic law, is singular. Yes, you can use the term Torah in a more general, broad sense that the context must show you what you're meaning there, but we're looking at it in relation to the Mosaic law. That's where the confusion comes. So this is for the Hebrew term Torah and also the Greek term nomos. It's a singular unit. So this division that we see of the law into these uh, man-imposed constructs, that's what they are. They're man-imposed constructs. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they're bad because it's very helpful sometimes to do things like this for the purposes of study and categorising and systematic theology often does this. And it's useful and beneficial. But we must just firstly understand that's not the way that Scripture speaks about the Mosaic law. And we find this principle even expressed in the New Testament itself. Let me read to you uh, the book of James, chapter 2, verse 10. James says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. This is a verse that sort of indicates that unity that we have to the Mosaic law. So to, to unravel the problem, we need to start with what the scripture tells us, that the law of Moses is a singular unit. That means we do not think that some parts are still active and others are inactive at the present time. That will lead to confusion. So we must, that's the first thing we need to look at to unravel this confusion, this question. The law of Moses is a singular unit. It's also very important to, to have in your mind as we go forward the actual purpose of the Mosaic legislation. There's a few different things I could give. Let me just give you four of the main ones. The first one, obviously, is to reveal God's holiness. The second one, to provide instruction for the Old Testament saints. Not for justification, but for their community instructions for, the, uh, for living as that nation, as the, the elect nation, as the people of Israel. The third reason, to reveal sin. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 particularly, but it, the book of Romans as a whole shows us, and Galatians also, that the, the purpose of the law was to show us our sinfulness. The fourth reason, given in Galatians, to lead us to faith. Remember those famous verses where it says the law has become a schoolmaster, a tutor, some translations will say, to lead us to Christ. And this is the sort of unusual paradox because the law actually makes us sin more in the sense that it incites the flesh to rebel against it. By doing that, it actually shows us that we have this need for a saviour and points us to Jesus the Messiah. So there's some of the main reasons to have in your head as we answer this question. And with these reasons in mind, we can conclude that the law has served its historical purpose in one sense. You see, the law of Moses was only ever meant to be a temporary measure. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 3:19, he, he makes this point. He says, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. It was added in addition to all those other unconditional covenants that we find as a temporary covenant until the seed comes. That means until Messiah. This shows us that with the death of Christ, the law of Moses was rendered inoperative. 
And this, I believe, is the clear-cut teaching of the New Testament. Now, let me qualify a few things. That does not mean that we get to ignore the Old Testament. Again, when we do that, we show that we're conflating the term law with the, everything in the Old Testament. That's just not true. And also, it does not mean that we do not need to study every single jot and tittle of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, I believe absolutely we do. We do. We can still be instructed from the Mosaic law in many, many, many ways. But as an operational code of conduct attached to a functioning covenant, I believe it is now inoperative. Romans 10.4 For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. There's also no justification by the law. Galatians 2 verse 16 reads like this. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Also, in uh, the author to the, the letter to Hebrews, he makes the point that the believer could not be made perfect or sanctified by the law in that sense. In verse 18, he says, For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, at, just in the context of, be, of this discussion, not, not as a total statement. And then verse 19, it says, For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Now, this is most clearly seen in the teaching in the book of Hebrews that when there is a change in priesthood, now this is absolutely vital to understanding this question, when there is a change in priesthood, the teaching of scripture in the New Testament is that there must by necessity be a change in law also. So with the Messiah, there was a change in priesthood. That is fairly uncontroversial. From the order of Aaron, the, the Aaronic priesthood uh, given to the Levites under the Mosaic stipulations, to the order of Melchizedek. This is what the book of Hebrews goes on about. So a new priesthood requires a new law. That is foundational. And I believe it's that piece of theology that really settles this question. Let me read to you Hebrews uh, chapter 7, verse 11 and 12. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not to be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. So that is the teaching of the New Testament. This change of priesthood was vital for Yeshua to be able to rightly function as our priest, as our high priest, in fact, to offer himself and offer sacrifice as that high priest. It was after the order of Melchizedek. And when a priesthood changes, there must be a change of law. So basically, when the law is seen as it is in Scripture, to sum up what we've looked at, it's an indivisible unit. And it's clear from when the new covenant was initiated with a change of priesthood, a change of covenant, a new law had to be instituted too. Therefore, it is my conclusion that believers are not under obligation to the Mosaic legislation. They were not, we were not uh, signatories to the Mosaic legislation in that sense. Now, that's not to say it's the learning about the Mosaic legislation is hugely beneficial. 
it was still revelation. It still reveals wonderful things about the, the holiness, the character of God. And it can still be used to reveal God's holiness in many, many ways. It can still be used to reveal man's sinfulness. It is a vital part of the canon of Scripture, and we should study it for the whole of our Christian lives, really. But we just have to understand the place of it in the theological sense and our obligation towards it. And I believe that the clear-cut teaching of the New Testament is that we are under a new covenant, and therefore the change of priesthood under Yeshua's ministry meant that there was a new law. The Mosaic law has ceased to function in that authoritative sense over the believer. Now, having said that, I don't believe we want to stop right there because let's deal with the issue of antinomianism that we talked about earlier. Having said that, does this now mean that we have no law, as some say? And, and, and a lot of people do say this. They, they make a big thing. Well, we're not under law. We're under grace. Slight misuse of that, that verse. And under grace, there's no law. Now, this is just not the correct way to think about this. Grace is visible throughout all of the Old Testament. It's, it's one of God's sort of attributes that we see revealed in Scripture. No, what we just read in Hebrews is, is the way we need to look at this. A new law must take its place. We're not left without a law. Now believers are under a new law and the law is what's for, referred to in the New Testament as the law of Christ. In Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Or elsewhere, it's called the law of the spirit of life. Romans 8, 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. This is the law that's written on our hearts by the spirit of God. According to the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31 that deals with the new covenant. This is a new law for the believer today. And yes, it contains commandments. Commandments are not a bad thing. In, in the sort of Protestant Christianity, we're so... Uh, conditioned to maybe just have this negative understanding when we hear the word commandment but that's just not the biblical understanding a commandment is teaching it's wisdom instruction and guidance from our holy father we should we should long for these things it teaches us how to imitate christ and this is new testament teaching too what does it say in 1 john 5 verse 3 for this is the love of god that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. This is the new law, the Torah of the new covenant, you could say. Now, this is where the confusion comes in. Now, listen carefully. There are many laws in the two codes, the Mosaic and the new, that are very similar, if not identical. And this is what has caused many people to conclude that some parts of the Mosaic law remain whilst others are done away with. And usually it's obviously the stuff that's associated with the temple that's easy to say is done away with. Now, as we've already seen, that cannot be the case. There's a much simpler and better explanation. And that is simply, it's a new law. It's not retaining parts of the old. Yes, there can be repetition. But of course, we would expect to see many of the same commands because they're both given by the same God who is unchanging. So many of the moral codes are, of course, going to be absolutely identical and similar because they come from the same God. Now, yes, there's a different way that God, uh, he wants his people to approach him. And that explain some of the change in the other laws. There's been a once for all sacrifice under the new covenant, which was not there under the old covenant. So that also explains the change. So you can explain the similarity in the new code and you can explain the difference without having to chop up the Mosaic law into bits that are kept and bits that are not. It's the new covenant, the new Torah associated with the change of priesthood. And this is this is not foreign to the Bible, just as with the Adamic and the Noahic codes that we that we find in Scripture, the Edenic codes that we find, many parts are retained as we go on with progressive revelation. 
This helps us to have a consistent view of the law of Moses and the believer today. Once we look at all these things in this context, we hold them all together. The believer today is free uh, to not observe the Mosaic law in that sense, in, in, uh, under obligation to do so. But he is also free to observe certain parts of the Mosaic law if he desires to do so. That's the the principle of freedom in the believer's life as long as he doesn't believe there's any um, confusion that it is contributing to his salvation or sanctification many messianic jews and this is a real issue in messianic missions they will adhere to certain parts of the mosaic law as an expression of their identity and also as a witness to their people particularly if they're living in the land of israel many evangelists still use the Ten Commandments to highlight a person's sinfulness, use it as that mirror to show us our need for a saviour. And these things are all biblical, totally biblical. So there's, you know, we mustn't discard the law to the dustbin, so to speak. It's part of revelation. We need to love it, honour it, study it, and but make sure we have it in its proper context and make sure we understand the covenants in light of progressive revelation and just how much uh, better the covenant instituted under the priesthood of Melchizedek by the great high priest our Lord Yeshua really is. So I really hope that that's been helpful. It's a big issue. We've dealt with it in a very small amount of time, but I hope that clears up a few issues there for your question. Thank you for your question. Now, there was actually just a briefly a second part to the question that was asking for recommendations for resources to better understand the Jewish background to the Bible and the cultural context. So many things I could give you. Let me just recommend a couple of books. There's a book by a man called Steve Herzig. It's called Jewish Culture and Customs. It's very interesting. You could go with the classics, Alfred Edersheim's book, Jesus the Messiah, or The Temple and Its Services. They're pretty heavy going to read, but they've got some great material in them. Uh, A bit more contemporary, we've got Marvin Wilson. He's done two books, one called Our Father Abraham and another volume called Exploring Our Hebraic Heritage. They're both very interesting. And I would also personally recommend the work of Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, particularly his four-volume set, The Life of Messiah from a Jewish Perspective. Wonderful piece of work. So thank you for listening. I hope this has been really good uh, and interesting for you. Please remember you can ask your questions. You can support the podcast. Uh, Please remember to subscribe to the podcast. If you're interested, we also have a YouTube channel. Just search Theology and Apologetics and look for the blue logo. We have a Facebook page. We also have an Instagram account. We'd love you to follow us on all of those and engage with us. As a ministry, most things have been cancelled in 2020 due to the situation that we have around the world but I do still have an upcoming trip to Germany for a conference at the end of this month so please pray for that if if it goes ahead and as always the details for the Patreon supporters will be in the end credits. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.